You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. Thank you guys on the worship team who put a lot of effort into doing what they do with excellence on Sunday morning and helping leading, help leading us to the throne of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. Every single thing we do in church on Sunday morning is worshiping the Lord. Even the announcements. So there's uh, uh, precedent of that in Scripture. When you read some of the um, epistles that the apostles wrote to the churches, you see greetings and just sort of taking care of business in, theirs, in those letters. So everything we do on Sunday morning is worship. We very much appreciate the effort that these guys put into it. And I'm so grateful for the clear communication from both Bert and Jeff about the importance of church this morning. And it was sort of brought home to me. It really didn't bring it all together until just now, a few moments ago. Allison and I last night attended my 47th a high school class reunion. That's an odd year, 47. We've only had two of them in all of uh, the years. But I don't know, this surprised me. Maybe it would surprise you in the other way. It surprised me to learn that 20% of my classmates are no longer with us. Maybe you'd look at me and say, I'm surprised 50% are still, you know, but... Uh, I thought we looked pretty good there last night, Allison, didn't you? There's a lot of old people there at that, at that class reunion. But to just think about how fleeting this life is and how important what we do is. Certainly a personal relationship with Christ. Jeff was talking about it this week. It's not just a personal relationship. Almost everything in the New Testament is written to the body. Now, individuals benefit from what we read, but it's written to the body, all the instructions to the church. And, of course, when he's saying don't lie to one another, he's talking to every single one of us. But, nonetheless, God calls us together as a local church to serve him, to worship him, to obey him together. And really, how do you live out the gospel life? without being in community with people? And how do you really forgive people if nobody ever makes you mad? You know? How do you love people in spite of their weaknesses and their differences if there are none ever? We are called to a different kind of community. And once again, it was spelled out pretty clearly how it's, it's unlike any social gathering until the first century and we think we're all about it in the in the 21st century in America but we're really not this is the place where we show the design that God had of bringing this beautiful diversity of people from all walks of life all races all nations and coming together and loving one another well if you want to know more about grace and I just want to encourage you if you've been coming for a while maybe Two, three weeks, maybe uh, two or three months, even six to 12 months, and you've really not connected with that many people, please stay for the discovery lunch afterwards. In the future, we're going to have sign-ups or you can't. But today, we want you to stay. We've got a lot of subs and a lot of staff, but they don't have to eat. We'd love for you to <laughs> say, notice I said, they don't have to eat. Uh, stay for discovery lunch and then jump in next week. Uh, for grace connection and, and just go a lot deeper about what the church is all about. You don't have to say anything, you know, just it's a very casual, relaxed time. We'd love to have you here. Well, if there's one thing Americans don't like, it's a king. It's in our DNA. We can't help it. I mean, we rebelled once against the king, right? Who, the, who we thought was unjust in his rulings from across the pond. No way... He has far too much power. We're not taking it. And yet, we are fascinated with royalty. 
Now, don't answer this question. You don't have to raise your hand. But I wonder how many of you have been up at 4 a.m. for a royal wedding. Besides Jim McLaughlin, I mean. Uh, <laughs> not so. <laughs> He's up at 4 a.m., but different reasons. Okay. All right. Americans do not worship kings and queens. We worship sports teams like UNC or Pittsburgh Steeler-themed funerals we have. I'm not talking... Weddings, I'm talking funerals. Memorabilia is put in the casket and goes under, six feet under, from the favorite sports team. We worship the newest eye gadget or the fashions. We worship causes and political figures who, of course, are not like the typical political figure, but speak with the voice of the people. Funny how there is almost always a moment of reckoning with our worship when the objects of our worship prove to be all too fallible. Furthermore, much of our worship of others when we examine it more clearly is self-serving, self-promoting, self-aggrandizing. What's going to help me? What's, what matters for me? What good am I getting out of this? The message this morning is a call for us to worship a human who also happens to be God, Jesus. I don't know why last night, this morning, I was just thinking about Jesus in his human form, looking like you and me sitting at the right hand of the Father. We will forever see him as one of us because he is one of us. Our text today is John 12, 1 through 19. And while there are two distinct stories, there is no doubt that the two pericopes, which is just a fancy Bible term for the story or a particular unit of Scripture, these two pericopes point to the same king and the God-given impulse that we all have to worship. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, you're going to know these two stories. Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, and then wiping his feet with her hair. And then the triumphal entry. If you're not familiar with these stories, I almost envy you for your first exposure to this counterintuitive yet entirely believable, humble King Jesus who was on his way to a cross. Today, we're going to read the entire text before going back to understand the context and the details of what's happening in these events that shaped not only all of history, but all eternity. It's our custom to stand for the reading of Scripture, so if you would please stand and prepare to be standing for a little bit this morning. John chapter 12, 1 through 19. <clears throat> Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. To what was put into it. I love the way that John says it. He just helped himself to what was in the bag. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I would go. I would be interested. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus, walking away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, or in other words, after he had been crucified and was resurrected from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, it is true that the entire world has gone after Jesus. It is even more true that Jesus has gone after the world. He has run us to hell. And we are blessed recipients of the grace and mercy of Jesus. May he be exalted and magnified and glorified in our hearts, in our eyes. May Jesus be preached as crucified before us. And may we exalt him and give him the glory that he deserves. And may that be seen in the way that we live this week. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, we're working our way through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and we've come to the brink of Holy Week or Passion Week, so called for Jesus' passion, his suffering and death on the cross in the place of sinners. Every week we just want to say that it is not our good works that enables us to stand before Jesus. Summer, uh, who was memorized this morning, is going to be baptized next week. Summer was baptized as an infant, but she said, after my love for Christ became evident to me because of his love for me and the recognition that I could not do good works to please him, I always thought I had to keep up and do something more. But when I realized that he died for me and I believed that his grace came alive in my heart and I began to understand and I just saw so many things. And I just want to tell the world, that I belong to him. And, and, and you can know this too. I say this often. Come back later and I'll explain it more in detail. But when she is saying, I belong to Jesus. In that baptism, Jesus is saying, I belong to Summer as well. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. Now we're moving in that direction in, in John's gospel. And John 12 is going to explain a lot more what it means about Jesus dying in the coming week. So uh, in this Passion Week that's recorded in, in John. John's record shows that Jesus and company arrived in Bethany six days before Passover, which was likely just before sundown on Friday with the Sabbath about to begin because the Sabbath began on Friday night into Saturday. The Jews reckoned the time of the day from about 6 p.m. on to the next day, from sundown to the next sundown at the next day. 
the dinner in verse 2 probably occurred on Saturday night at the conclusion of the Sabbath. There was usually a big meal at the conclusion. There was a lot of people coming around. It was a good time. We're told in Matthew and Mark that the dinner in question, or the dinner that we're, is being described here, took place in the home of Simon the leper, who um, lived in Bethany, obviously. Now, John doesn't tell us it was Simon's home, but... But Matthew and Mark do tell us it was in Simon's home. Martha, Mary, Lazarus had all gone there. And there was a celebration given in honor of Jesus. We find Martha, Lazarus, and Mary in the same place as they usually are. Before I say that, though, let me just say, we can infer that Simon was no longer a leper we can infer the reason he was no longer a leper was that Jesus had healed him. So everybody was there. There was a sense of celebration in the air. Martha is where she usually is in the kitchen, serving. She's walking around doing things for everyone. Lazarus, as men were doing, was reclining at table. And Mary was at Jesus' feet where we almost always, always, find her. Then Mary did an amazingly foolish thing. Foolish, that is, in everyone's eyes except for Jesus. Mary took an expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet with pure nard. How expensive was the fragrant ointment? Well, it was a, about a year's salary for the average person. Either the family was extremely rich or this treasure had been passed down from generation to generation. The house was filled with the fragrance and most likely took everyone's breath away. Not because of the aromatic sense, but because of the, the understanding that Mary has just somehow poured out thirty to $35,000 worth in our <clears throat> reckoning of, of money, somewhere around $30,000 worth of ointment on Jesus. Now, you recall from just the last week or two, there was no embalming in first century Palestine. And so when a person would die... They were likely to be put into a cave and there would be some stones. But you wanted to anoint the body with a great deal of spice to cover the odor that would come from the decay. Just in case any of it leaked out. And so <coughs> people probably would have thought, <coughs> wow, that's expensive that you're doing that for Jesus after he was dead. If, if later in the week when they brought his body off the cross, Mary had anointed him. People might have raised an eyebrow, but they would have not greeted her with shouts of indignation. They would have understood, but he was alive. For goodness sake, he was alive. And she was pouring this out on him. Now, most likely, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we're reading about all over the place, she's doing something that she doesn't fully understand. Jesus says, she's done this in preparation for my burial, or let her keep this for my burial. He's just essentially saying she's done doing this because I'm going to die. He's implying I'm going to die, and I'm going to die relatively soon. Have you ever worshipped? Oh, one other thing Mary did. She let down her hair in public. This was just unacceptable, culturally unacceptable for a woman of the day and further humiliated herself by wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Have you ever worshipped Jesus in such a dramatic fashion that everyone thought you had lost your mind? I'm not talking about worshipping with some sort of ecstatic experiences that some have used to express their love for the Lord. But if you worship the Lord in a tangible way such as this, look, it's a good place to mention it. Um, some of you want to raise your hands in worship, but you just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Get over that. Just raise your hand in worship. If you want to do that, that's fine. The Bible talks about lifting up holy hands before the Lord. 
But do people think you're crazy because you tithe? Or that you refuse to miss church? Or that you share the gospel? Someone very close to me this week was excoriated. And I mean taken apart this past week for sharing the truth about the human condition apart from Jesus as being broken. When you share the gospel, some people are going to hear like Summer did and say, this is the best news ever. And some are going to hate you for it. Judas ridiculed this shameless woman for her act of service. Jesus not only defended Mary, but we're told in Matthew and Mark, her worshipful service will be reported for all time wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world. We're talking about it today. People were always criticizing Mary, and Jesus was always defending her. I'm convinced the closer you are to Jesus, Jesus, the crazier people will think you are. John pointed out that Judas wasn't really concerned about the portal. He was a thief and he wanted to help himself to some of that $30,000. Have you noticed that none of the gospel writers can say anything about Jesus without identifying the fact that he is the one who would betray Jesus or Judas. I mean, they talk about, anytime they talk about Judas, they say, you know, the one who betrayed Jesus. You know, the one who was going to betray Jesus. We remember both of these primary characters in the story, Judas and Mary, but we remember them for different things. Judas what Judas received when he betrayed Jesus, I read everything from $600 in contemporary dollars, anywhere from $600 to $3,000, probably it skewed toward that higher amount where he got around $3,000. So $30,000, $3,000. As Michael Card points out, the discrepancy or the exchange rate between love and betrayal is roughly 10 to 1. Just a few thoughts about Jesus' words in verses 7 and 8, which are really important verses to understand. In verse 7, Jesus states as clearly as he ever does that he's going to die. Once again, the implication is it's going to be soon. You're not going to always have me. The poor you will always have with you, but not me. Now, whenever Jesus or one of the apostles uses an Old Testament quote, what are you supposed to know about that passage surrounding the quote? You're supposed to know the context, right? We are supposed to understand the whole portion that is being treated, not just that particular quote. <clears throat> so Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, from which the, 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 the quote, the poor you will always have with you comes, is a stern reminder that we are to take good care of the poor who were in the covenant community because there will always be poor people with us, and we must not shirk our responsibility to care for them. But recognize at the same time that sometimes it is appropriate to be extravagant in your worship of Jesus. And Jesus deserves the same level of worship that the Father does. Now, once again, I think I mentioned this the last few weeks, Herod's temple was known as one of the great wonders of the world. It, it was too late. It was built too late to be one of the seven ancient wonders. But it was an amazing structure that dazzled people who saw it. The Jews didn't mind spending money on that structure of the temple. And yet Judas is really upset <clears throat> That Mary's pouring $30,000 worth of ointment on him. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm worthy of the same level of worship that my father is. I am God. 
So here's one for you. This will get you going. Do you think ornate churches are a waste of money? Couldn't that money be better spent on helping the poor? Since the dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit is now in and among believers regardless of where they are? Or are churches to be built to the glory of God? So here's my response, and this may surprise you. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm so American that I approach everything with my American thoughts about efficiency and technology. Look, God does not want us to be efficient. Americans want to be efficient. God wants us to worship him. Many years ago, I went to New Jersey. I did the wedding for Sean and Melissa Cross. I can't even remember her maiden name. Some of you will shout it out, I'm sure. But I can't remember. But I was up there in New Jersey. And they very thoughtfully set the wedding for 8 p.m. That was an interesting time. Never done a wedding that late. But it was 40 miles out of the city. So there were a lot of Campbell students. There must have been 20 of us. That took the train into the city. And we were walking around, touring. And we got to St. Peter's. Uh, uh, church, it is St. Peter's, right? In, not St. Peter's. Not, it's uh, St. Patrick's in New York. St. Patrick's. And we walked inside. And it is an impressive church. If you've never been. When you're, next time you're in the city. It's on Fifth Avenue. Go into St. Patrick's. And just take a look around. And so we all walked to the front of the of the church, and there's this area, the, the podium is just barely, it's like one step up, and there's a, it, there, there is a, a, a podium that's, that's actually smaller than this one, standing off to the side. And so I asked the question, I just, because I, again, I don't know the answer, I still don't know the answer. What do you think about this? Is this a waste of money or not? And some were saying, absolutely, this is a waste of money. You think about all the money that could have been given to missions. And others were saying, I sense God in a structure like this in ways that I don't know that I have in a long time. Chuck Wade, one of the missionaries that we support in Turkey, who is in the area now, I think, uh, with, a, with a conference. But Chuck, I knew what Chuck was going to say. Oh, yeah, waste of money. But I don't think Chuck thinks that anymore. Even if he has doesn't have the complete opposite viewpoint. I'm not sure he knows. Look. People used to construct beautiful buildings in honor of God. Is it that we don't have the money anymore? We're the richest people in the history of the world. We got more money than anybody. Maybe we just don't care. I don't know. That's I'm betrayed. Let's move on. <laughs> here's the here's the point. There are a lot of questions about Christian life and about our relationship with the Lord that are not as clear as we may think they are. Unless you say. Catholics who built all those back in medieval times, there were a lot of believers in those churches back in those days that built those buildings for the glory of God. When everyone heard that Jesus was back in town and dining with Lazarus, large crowds came to see. I would have come to see, wouldn't you? The chief priests who were Sadducees determined. Remember the Pharisees? They wanted to kill Jesus. Now the Sadducees, the high priest, said, let's not only kill Jesus, let's kill Lazarus as well. Because so many people were making conscious decisions to walk away, which is what Summer did, by the way, an organized religion. I'm walking away from this church that says you've got to do good in order to be saved. And I'm following Jesus. I'm throwing all of my hope on him. The cost of following the Lord is demonstrated here and almost everywhere in Scripture. What was the first murder? Cain murdered Abel. Why? 
Because Abel brought a blood-soaked sacrifice as surely the Lord had told them he wanted, even though it's not recorded in Genesis. And Abel, Abel's, uh, Cain said, you know what, I'll just bring the best of what I've got, the best of my vegetables, and I'm going to give this to the Lord. And God said, that's not what I wanted, Cain, and you know it. And it made Cain mad, so mad that he killed Abel. The cost of following Jesus is high when you follow him at the levels that we're called to do. <clears throat> the triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels. Not many events are. Now, from here out in, in, in Passion Week, a lot of the same events are recorded. But this one surely is important in the big scheme of things, where it reveals Jesus to be a king. You know, those people that we don't typically worship. There's no way to give this event the kind of time it deserves. So I'll just hit the highlights. Though you're going to go more in-depth during home groups this week. And if you're sensing that you're just getting a part of the story on Sunday morning, that's correct. Home groups are important. On Sunday, Jesus began walking the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. And as he moved steadily toward Jerusalem, the crowds increased. We don't know if the disciples went and got the donkey and brought it back to Bethany or if they met him somewhere along the way. We just know that he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people are cutting palm branches and putting them down before Jesus. And they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna means give salvation now. And you can look at that in two ways. A lot of people were saying, hey, an armed rebellion is about to take place. This happened a lot on those feasts in Jerusalem. The, the, the crowds would swell the population of Jerusalem to many times its normal state. And so... People would pick up arms and they would say, rebel, unite, and rebel, we're going against Rome. And it ended up most of the time like the French guys in Les Mis, you know, that were going to take down the French government. And it was just a pitiful little band. <clears throat> well, Jesus didn't come to kill. He came to give his life. He came riding into town, not on a war but on a donkey as the prince of peace. Not to kill, but to give his life and to die in the place of others. And to die for you and me. Even so, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as the king of his people. Although the Romans did not notice what was happening, the Jewish leader certainly did. Crowds gathered to Jesus in increasing numbers. And the Pharisees made a claim that once again seemed to be hyperbole, but turned out to be spot on. Look, the whole world is going after him. We're in trouble. We have to do something with this guy. Now, you may notice... Not many of you did, but I bet a few of you noticed that we skipped verse 16 in going through the explanation of the text. We're going to come back to that in the fifth and final point of application. But it's time for us to, to take some application from these verses that we have read in John 12, beginning with this first thought. And this is an easy one. Where you invest your time, money, and attention is it? And attention is a good indicator of the object of your worship. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? This is easy theologically. It's even easy rationally. But practically? Oh my. This is tough. We don't need to spend much time here, but I do want to give you just a moment of silence to examine and ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. Who's on the throne of my heart? 
Is King Jesus reigning there? Or is there something else or someone else reigning in my heart? If it is not Jesus, repent and ask the Lord to take back the throne that is rightfully his in your life. It belongs to him. So let's take just a moment. Second, the believer has both the responsibility to help the poor and to prioritize Jesus in worship. I said earlier that Deuteronomy 15 gives instructions to the Israelites to help those in the covenant community, which included those who have come under the who had come under the umbrella of the nation of Israel and who submitted to the law of Moses. Even the book of James, with its commands to take care of orphans and widows, seems to be pointing to those first and foremost within the covenant community or in the church. Early Christians, though, clearly understood both the responsibility and privilege of helping all poor who were not believers, which is one of the reasons that Christianity spread so rapidly. In AD 362, the Emperor Julian, Julian the Apostate, was trying to beat back the advances that Christianity had made, ostensibly the advances Christianity had made, under Constantine's rule and the ones who followed him. Julian was trying to get it back, and he was running into the fact that Christians were doing such great work that people were flocking to Christ. It is disgraceful, he said in his letter to the pagan high priest, Arsacius. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, Deuteronomy 15, and the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Again, Deuteronomy 15 and James. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Here's Julian saying, look, people look around and they say, the government's not supporting us. Christians are. In our day, I think it's flipped. The church is not supporting us. Thank God the government is. Without question, we ought to help the poor. Interesting that this text falls on the day that we take our benevolence offering. At the end of the service, once a month, the last Sunday of the month, we take an offering that goes to help those in need, first within our body and then outside of our body. And, and, and it's right that we do this. Even so, Jesus is our priority. And wouldn't it be something if just once we would worship him as extravagantly as Mary did? A third point of application from our text. Secret sins... And an unwillingness to receive godly rebuke invite personal disaster. It goes without saying that the keeper of the money bag had to be trusted. Judas betrayed the trust that he had been given. It turns out always to be the case, doesn't it? Or often to be the case. People who have embezzled money for years and years. People thought, everybody says, I would have never thought it would be that person. Judas betrayed that trust. He was so smooth that the other disciples were shocked when he turned out to be the betrayer that Jesus had prophesied. The last few months, I don't know, I've just encountered so many people who say one thing publicly and you know the things that almost nobody else knows. They are just not the people who they purport to be. I'm going to quit looking in the mirror. I, I just, it's, it's getting to be too much. Actually, I do see that guy in the mirror. But I see it in a pretty high level in other places. And I'm tempted to be cynical until 
I look in the scripture and I see the emphasis to get the log out of my own eye and not worry so much about the specks in everybody else's eye. Such a recognition enforces, reinforces the need for the gospel every day in the life of the believer. The Protestant Reformation was launched with these these words, the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is a beautiful gift, not only to unbelievers, but believers as well. When we indulge our sins in secret Without repentance, we swim in dangerous waters because we don't know where the sharks are. And a lot more than that, don't worry about the sharks. God knows everything about us. He knows our hearts. Does this mean we should seek to achieve perfection? Heavens no. Romans 7 is enough to let us know we will struggle with sin as long as we live. Romans 6, your identity is in Christ, therefore you don't have to sin. Romans 7, but Adam is still in you. Even though you're in Christ, Adam is still in you. And you will sin to the day you die. Even in the face of that, Romans 8 gives us the wonderful news that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is clear that believers, when confronted with our sin, need to repent to own up to our sin. And just this week, I was able to practice this in a, at a level I just didn't anticipate. I've confessed things and I've like, well, you know, I was misunderstood or this or that, but it just hit me. No. This is what God is calling to you, calling you to, to a full repentance and admission of what you have done or what you tend to do. When we are convicted of our sins, specific sins that for whatever reason God does not take the temptation away, even though we beg him to. When we're confronted with our sins, be thankful for the gospel. That even as a believer, you mess up and God is so gracious to forgive you at the moment you confess. It's likely that Judas' decision to betray Jesus was solidified when the Savior rebuked him. So here's a question. There's another question for you. I don't think this will get me in as much trouble. How well... Do you receive correction? I'm not talking about when people scream at you online, but when a spiritual authority or a brother or sister in Christ gently calls out the sin in your life, how do you respond? I can assure you, a strength of mine, this is not. But even at this late stage, I am asking God to soften my heart to receive godly, Correction. Fourth, make sure your affection for Jesus goes deeper than simply being carried away by the excitement of those around you. Some of the same crowd <clears throat> was caught up in the frenzy surrounding Jesus' triumphal entry and calling out, Hosanna, the one blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Surely were some of the ones who were calling for his crucifixion on Friday. Just caught up in the excitement of the moment. D.A. Carson says this, quote, If there is no evidence of hostility on the part of the ordinary pilgrim at the triumphal entry. So what his point is, the leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but the people weren't hostile at all. They were calling out for his exaltation. If there is no evidence of hostility on the part of the ordinary pilgrim at the triumphal entry, neither is there evidence of thoughtful discipleship, only of considerable enthusiasm. Close quote. The Christian life is not a party. We do not 
look for or receive our affirmation from the crowd. I do hope, I, I really hope that Kanye West and Justin Bieber both have been born again. But my relationship with Christ doesn't depend on that. I am amused, and I'm sure I've said this. In fact, I've thought, I have to keep myself from thinking this. Oh, wouldn't it be great if so-and-so could be saved? Just think of what that person could do for the Really? The God, the sovereign God of the universe needs somebody to be saved so others will get the news that following Jesus is cool. Following Jesus is not cool. It's hard. And we will not be rewarded in this life for it. So make up your mind. that I'm following him for the right reason. And when you do... You're going to get so caught up in Jesus that you're going to worship him like Mary did. So this question, does your relationship with Jesus depend on anyone else's faith? Last of all, do not despise your lack of knowledge and understanding, but rather search the scriptures to know and worship Jesus better. Two weeks after I had crusted, trusted, <laughs> crusted Christ, trusted Christ, and the scriptures had opened up to me when I was 18 years old, I had a thought that thrilled my soul. I will never learn everything there is to know in this book. I was so blessed by what I was learning, and I thought, this book is, it, it, it's, it's boundless. It is fathomless. It, it just goes on and on and on. And I will always be learning for the rest of my life. And that's been true for 47 years. I will confess though, that there are times that I wish that I attended, had attended seminary as a younger man. There have even been times that I thought, what if I'd been a pastor from the earliest days? I would have been in the scripture at the level that I am now. And I would know more. But you know what? God is sovereign. And I wouldn't take anything for those years when I was at TVR. The way that the Lord used that place in the kingdom is beyond anything I could describe. And my understanding of scripture growing now at levels that it never did when I was younger. is just a blessing that at this age I'm still learning. About the Lord. I say these things not to talk about myself, but to encourage those of you who are just getting to the place of a better understanding of the Bible. And you think, oh man, what about all those years before? Look at verse 16. When all of this was happening, when, <clears throat> when the triumphal entry is taking place, John throws in a little explanation of the disciples' understanding at the time. He said his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now we look at the triumphal entry with the help of commentators and we say, well, of course. Zechariah 9. I mean, any fool could have seen that it was being fulfilled before their eyes. <laughs> no. The disciples didn't see that, nor would we have seen that. Furthermore, we would have scattered just like they did. One of the things maybe we'll talk about is the difference in Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. Sometimes pe people think they're guilty of Judas' betrayal when they're only guilty of Peter's denial, which is significant. It's also significant that Peter's the first one Jesus called out. Tell my disciples and Peter that I have risen. And I love him and I want to see him. So the disciples didn't see that at the time. It was later when they put it all together. And you can see even in the writings of the apostles. You can see in the book of Acts the gospel began to develop more clearly as time goes by. They were beginning to see this as it had been prophesied but they didn't see it. 
at first. So the question is not, why do you not know more about the Bible than you do? How long have you been saved? But rather, what are you going to do with this treasure that you hold? The one that points you to Jesus. Be excited to learn and to grow and to know more and more about the Lord. You often hear me talk about the benefit of reading through Scripture every year. Just last month, I saw something in the book of James that I had never seen before. And it made a huge difference in the way I understand the book as a whole. I would tell you what it is, but I would far prefer for you to make such discoveries on your own. And you know when I did that, something like the 35th year of reading through the Bible. And I saw stuff in Leviticus this year that I've never seen before. Reading the Bible every year has been a huge discipline for me. I know, or is a benefit to me for understanding God. I don't know if it will be for you. Maybe there are other things that you can do. But you can't know it if you're not reading it. And if you are, you're going to love what you find. You are exactly where you should be in God's grand design. Make your commitment now to pursue King Jesus in God's word. He is, after all, your king. And when you know him for who he is, this may do something really foolish. Like worship him extravagantly. Let's pray. This morning as the worship team comes to lead us in our final song, the benevolence uh, offering is also going to be taken the Ushers are coming. Once a month, we take a benevolence offering. At the end of the service, it's on the last Sunday of the month. How appropriate. I didn't even make the connection. That we do so on the day when Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. Not meaning to demean at all. Service to the poor. But in fact, to emphasize it even more. And then to say beyond that, but worship me. Don't worship your good works even. Worship me. And this morning we have opportunity to do both. To worship Jesus as we give to help those in, our, help those in need. First in our body and then outside the body. Father, <clears throat> thank you so much. For the way that your scripture not only tells a story, but it draws us in to the truth of the gospel and the beauty of your pursuit of us and your love for us. May we be so lost in our worship of you like Mary that we don't think about what others consider of us. But that you're pleased. And we love you and worship you with that love. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.